Strachan and Bell together. There's Cooper breaking through. A chance now. This will be the fourth ball for Aberdeen. Cooper puts it in with good measure. Well, suddenly it's become a rout. Of course, when things are going wrong against you, you don't get the breaks of the ball. Cooper in with Stewart. He didn't really know where the ball was, but he got the break. And as you say, it's a schoolboy's dream being able to take your time, knowing that really all you've got to do is crack it into the back of the net. And welcome to the latest episode of the AFC Here We Go podcast. As always, joining us in the podcast this week, we have Richard Hay. How are you, Richard? Hello, Martin. Uh, we've had this new name for over a year and still you can't get it right. Never mind. I just like referring to the Twitter name and not the real name. It's okay. Um, you know, young people don't know what it means anyway, so it's fine. Because it was only me and Richard last week, since we've decided to spoil you with two guests this week to keep the, to keep the chat even more lively. We're joined by Martin Ingram from the Red Final. How are you doing, Martin? I'm doing well, thanks for having me on, and just to say it was, it was great to see your podcast pop up in my list again after a, a wee hiatus, so great to be back on. We're also joined by Lewis Walker from the What Astro Marsh blog, of the, delighted to welcome you back as well, Lewis. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. I'm not sure spoil was the right word, but uh, good to be back to you. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, we don't have a, we don't have a victory to talk about though, Richard. 1-1 away to St Johnston. Andy Constein obviously makes his fifth 500th appearance for Aberdeen Football Club, Club. rightly captain for the game as well, wasn't he? I mean, I thought towards the end uh, we were going to get a fairy tale moment when he rose for that header late on. Uh, really good to see a good turnout for him. Um, there was always a possibility that it would turn the game itself into a sideshow, but in terms of the away fans, it was really just a shame there were probably more Dons fans there on Sunday as there were as testimonial a few years back. Lewis, um, Sam Cosgrove popped up again with another another excellent goal to put us up in the lead. Um, great control, nice drive low into the bottom corner. But now that we're loaded, um, we're not going to need to take any bids in for Sam, are we? <laughs> no, but I think we should be expecting some in January. But um, no, it was a great goal. I wasn't at the game, unfortunately, but I saw like his name pop up and I was expecting a, some sort of stramash in the six-yard box or something. But when I saw the highlights back, it was a great, great touch, sort of Cruyff chop um, on the edge of the box and some hit as well. So... Maybe a bit symbolic of his improving all-round game, hopefully, anyway. Um, yeah, it's really, he's really coming on to something. And, I mean, I'll take 20 million, but I may as well hold on to him for now. We should absolutely acknowledge what a good goal it was. And I think it's been lost a little bit amongst the tributes paid to, to Andy and the frustrations at dropping two more points. I mean, he wins the ball first uh, off to flick it through the hedges. Cleverly gets away from his man. It's such a fine, pure strike. I mean, we keep saying it. What a transformation. I, I can't think of anything else like it in my time watching the Dons. I don't know if anybody else can, can proffer another name that's just had this transformation from Ugly Duckling to Star Striker. That would be a no then. That's a no, yeah. <laughs> drawing, a, drawing an absolute blank there to someone who's, you know, there's plenty, of, I think there's plenty of guys who have been, you know, been absolutely hopeless and then have turned out to be semi-decent, but yeah, nothing quite like the ascendancy that Sam's had. Especially if you, if you remember his debut and when he got sent off, it was, it was like he almost got laughed off the park. It was, 
incredible to see where he is now. It's, yeah, it's mental. And of course, we go so we go one up, Martin, and then we have well, we have what should have been a penalty. Well, it was a penalty claim. Um, handball by Duffy. Main jumps up for the header. Um, really awful from the referee and the linesman not to spot that. It really doesn't excuse a, a terrible, terrible mag- a miss by Niall McGinn following it, does it? Well, when you're saying it was a definite penalty claim, it was definitely a penalty. Um, it doesn't really get much more blatant than that. Even even taking for the fact that we maybe have more confusing handball rules nowadays in, in, in recent times, um, even, even in the old days of... Uh, uh, only getting penalties for deliberate handball, having your left hand raised right in front of the, the face of the player who's about to head on goal is about as clear cut as you get as a as a penalty. So um, I was trying to take. I, was, I, was, I saw in the sports scene highlights as well. I think there was an attempt at mitigation on behalf of the linesman's positioning with regards to whether he was able to um, get a proper sight of it, maybe through the part of his hand being pretty much in exactly the same place as Curtis's head was but as you say I think the referee would have had as, as good a view as anybody and I think that's for McGinn's miss I mean the, the only thing I can think of is if it was just so jarring that McGinn maybe had as good a sight of that as any that it was so jarring that there wasn't going to be a penalty call that it maybe just put him out of his stride I think am I right in saying it was it was Niall McGinn who was on the other end of that in that I was thinking back to the European game in Maribor. Was it him that finished off the the, the, the the goal where a penalty was awarded and his goal got chalked off? So whether it was a similar situation where he was hesitant with regards to whether it was going to be a penalty given or not. But either way, as you say, it was effectively more or less an open goal for him to finish for and pretty inexplicable. I mean, I have to say that I didn't spot the handball first off, but in fairness, I was 120 yards away. There's no excuse for Kevin Clancy. I think that was what maybe one of the problems with why he didn't give it. There was barely any appeals. I think Hedges appealed um, loudest, but hardly any of the players. I think Main must have had his eyes closed because he didn't appeal. Yeah, the, the ref had a clear view, but I think he said post-match he didn't have a clear view to McInnes, which, I mean, looking back, that's nonsense. And it not only would have been a penalty kick, but as you know, Martin rightly said, it, it's deliberate handball, and this should have been the further sanction for that. Listen, we had other chances during the game. Crying over the uh, missed penalty kick is um, not going to do us any good. And as you rightly point out, even within the context of that move, Mal again should have finished that. Pretty inexplicable that he missed it. Lewis, bit of a puzzling one though. After 53 minutes, he takes off Maine and he puts on Bryson. The guy Kennedy had been given Logan a, t- a, bit, of a t- bit of a tough time, um, so Maine gets sacrificed for that extra midfielder. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's no, it's it, it was game management by McInnes, but that seemed to just completely change the game. And St Johnston, who had barely been in the game in the first half, came into the game from that point onwards. Yeah, I think well, McInnes said post match, it wasn't. Um... It wasn't meant defensively, but he just needed an extra man in the middle of the park. But he also did mention the phrase seeing it out. So I think that speaks a lot. He also cited the fact he brought Maine on in the last game. So Maine shouldn't feel too too troubled by getting taken off. But yeah, if, it, if the game flipped for the negative, then it, obviously looking back, it wasn't the best decision. But I'm sure he had the greatest intentions at heart. But it's, I think McInnes' first instinct is to keep the lead with one goal as opposed to going to get another goal which can't, doesn't always work and it's obviously backfired this time It's just Richard when you mentioned you know you were talking about someone like uh, Sam Cosgrove being unrecognisable to what he was 12 months ago and one of the, the key aspects of um, when he first kind of got on that run around about this time onwards last year November, December uh, McInnes 
kind of adopting back into or, or going into the kind of a four four two formation, and it just ringed a bell with me because obviously it was uh, the the striker and the other team, Stevie May, who was his partner at that particular time. But it seemed to facilitate uh, a more positive style of play for Aberdeen, and it seemed to do a lot of good for Cosgrove's form as well. And uh, I do wonder if we're maybe missing a trick with not kind of pursuing that a bit further with. You know, Curtis Main, you know, he has looked a lot more constructive in a 4-4-2 formation. There's maybe a separate discussion further on about whether it should be Main and, and, and Cosgrove being those two, but Cosgrove seems to have been doing better in that situation. The team in general seems to be a lot more positive. And, well, as we all know, it, it, it is a criticism level of McInnes that he does seem to have that inclination of going towards protecting a one-goal lead as opposed to maybe pushing on. And one of the big issues that come across from that, this is hardly the first time this season where we've had a situation where we've had a positive start, we've got ourselves 1-0 in front, only to see the goal further down the line and losing points as a consequence. Well, there's a few things there. I think, first of all, it's not as if we were tearing them apart with two up top. Um, we, were, we, we had the lead, we'd had other chances in the first half, and we'd certainly restricted them. But they were seeing a lot of the ball, and I could certainly understand the intention of getting that extra body in the middle of the park. But does it really need repeating that playing two up top need not be a more attack-minded strategy than just having the one up there? There's a load of other factors concerning how we set up as to how attack-minded it actually is. However, additionally on the Craig Bryson front, it should be an utter embarrassment to him that this far into the season, a left-back pressed into service in midfield was picked ahead of him. Now, whether that's because he's still not fully fit from the ankle issues that he's had, or whether it's simply because he hasn't justified his place because of his form. Either way, it's an awful look for, you know, as we said before, our marquee signing of the summer. Anyway, I could, I could understand the logic in that first sub. may not have panned out as it should have done, but I can understand the logic. But unless Ryan Hedges was injured, and I know they've been trying to manage a back issue of his, I don't quite see the logic in the second swap, which was Gallagher for Hedges. It meant that we really only had the one creative input in Niall McGinn, uh, creative output, um, outball rather, that's the word, uh, in Niall McGinn. And when the third sub is made, I think naturally in those circumstances, you're going to roll the dice and put in another striker. I just wonder whether putting the likes of Conor McLennan on might have helped open them up a bit more, but obviously we'll never know. I just want to talk briefly about game management because I looked into the numbers. So we've, under Derek McInnes, we've led in 160 league games. Of those 160, we've drawn 15, lost 6, and won 139 of them, or 87% of the time. We're pretty good front runners. Certainly season on season, when you look at the numbers, it compares very well against the rest of the league. We are usually very effective at seeing out a game. Pretty sure the reason we didn't win is because I had a five-run Constantine in an Aberdeen win. <laughs> Sentimental betting, Lewis. It'll get you nowhere. And Martin dragged me into it from the previous podcast. Yeah, I kind of got carried away last week. Um, really, I have to apologise for that. Uh, but yeah, like I think you're you're right to say, Richard. Um, now, so Johnson, it's it's maybe harsh to say that we're well, harsh for me to say that we're barely in the game. Uh, but yeah, their, their first attack and note in the second half leads to their goal. The flow of the game had changed since halftime, to be honest, and it really was. You say their first serious attack, which is is maybe true in terms of getting directly through onto Joe Lewis, 
But it was one of those you could see coming because Kennedy had ripped Logan apart for most of the game. Not helped by his rather daft early yellow card. I'd definitely be keeping an eye on Matty Kennedy's contract situation. I know he, he doesn't turn it in week in, week out. And he's, again, he's had some injury problems, but he looks like you know one of the more effective direct wingers in in this league. And I'd be I'd be keeping an eye on him for for the future definitely. Devlin McKenna, I thought had actually played really pretty well up into that aberration from Devlin for the goal. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what he's doing or what he thinks he's doing. It's almost a, it's just a wild swing with his foot and it's, it, he just misses it completely. And uh, Martin, um, Richard no, quite rightly says earlier on no, we're, there's no point crying over spilt milk with the penalty decision we didn't get. Um, the referee, in fairness, um, dished, dished out two red cards to St. Johnson later in the game. Uh, Davidson for a foul on Bryson um, and Hendry for one on Ferguson. Um, I don't think either of them can really have any complaints about those, can they? Absolutely not. I was actually looking back to your uh, post-hiatus podcast from the previous week and one of the subject matters was a broken Craig Bryson. Who would have thought one week later he would be more broken than what he was when you first spoke about it? The Murray-Davidson one is just horrendous. You know, It's a reckless challenge, it's late, it's mistimed. Um, he's put the full impact of his studs into the kind of high ankle area of, of Bryson's foot and it's obviously bad enough anyway regardless who it is but as, as, as you're saying with someone who is you know trying to recover a position in the team from uh, a large uh, injury period it's just the worst thing that could have happened to him personally um, as, as for the other one um, in many respects the, the Hendry foul in Ferguson is probably more reckless but in actual fact he's actually probably mistimed it so badly as to be not as not as bad he's kind of gone with a two footed lunge missed with both lunges and just kind of scissored him in the middle which has probably actually been better off for Ferguson in the long run but you could just tell by the immediate reaction from Lewis and some of the other players around him how bad it was and and you have to say credit to Clancy in both instances I think he effectively he had his red card out, card out of the pocket the, the instant both of those situations happened and if, if anything that actually probably took a bit of heat out of both of the situations Yeah, weirdly the Davidson one didn't look that bad at the game in real time but yeah, when you see it on camera slowed down, absolute shocker over the top and as uh, you rightly point out full impact right into his ankle studs in just a nasty, nasty challenge then Lewis, after that, we absolutely laid siege to their goal. Just couldn't get over the line, though. I mean, we, we really should have had it buried probably long before the red cards anyway. Ten minutes. And as Richard mentioned earlier on, we almost had our fairy tale moment for Considine as well. Yeah, they looked to be plenty huffing and puffing and a fair amount of chances, if not half chances, quite a few from outside the box. But I think we're probably one of the more easier teams to play against with ten men or even nine men, just due to we are, we're pretty one-dimensional, don't have much much um, creativity or individual flair so um, of all the teams you'd want to play probably want us or maybe a couple others but yeah if Constantine scored that would be absolutely brilliant it's almost written in the stars but it was a decent save it wasn't those last 15 minutes that lost us the game it was it was the period up before then we had we had lost the run of the game in that second half and to be honest the red card changed the momentum because if anything at the point where St Johnson equalised I was thinking we're going to lose this because we had we had fallen right out of it in that second half. We were just guilty of trying to force the issue way too much, and as I said before, just really having the one creative outball in Nile again on the park instead of you know maybe having kept another sub up our sleeve before the red cards happened. The real frustration is that over the course of the game, we didn't really extend 
uh, their goalkeeper that much. His saves were nothing special. And so that was our trip to McDermott Park. Right now, though, we're going to have a chat with um, the first of our guests, Lewis. Um, obviously, Lewis, uh, you were at the opening of Aberdeen's second Cruyff Court pitch last week. Uh, the first is at my old stomping ground at Catherine Street. Um, it's named after Dennis Law. Um, this is the new one now. It um, carries the name of the legendary Neil Cooper. Yeah, so um, so I'll just introduce the trust quickly. So we just deliver, um, I work for the Dennis Law Legacy Trust, we deliver free programmes for youths in Aberdeen where there's like, more anti-social behaviour um, than other areas um, and then go there with the programme called Street Sport and basically deliver free sport um, to these youths in um, with various equipment and um, often have a pop-up arena and things like that. So yeah, the second Cruyff Court um it was, it's down at Tullis Primary School in Torrey. Um, there was a great turnout, obviously, for Neil Cooper and his, his um, he's obviously so well liked by the city and, um, it was, uh, excellent, excellent little occasion. Um, a lot of the Gothenburg greats were there, um, spoke to a few of them, spoke to Big Doug Rugby, great man, really nice. Um, and they all, yeah, they all seemed chuffed to be, be together again and, um, enjoyed the experience. And then Graham Hunter was there speaking. The council obviously getting their photo opportunities, but um, no, it's a great, great free facility for the kids there. And um, there's obviously not much. It's a free 4G area um, plus concrete around it for different activities, which you don't get. So much of the 4G pitches are locked when um, padlocked and pick costs about 100 quid an hour to hire. So for this sort of facility for kids in these sort of areas like Tory and obviously in the centre of Catherine Street and things like that, um, it's real, yeah, brilliant for the kids, and hopefully it goes down well. Yeah, no, it's obviously it's like it's 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 a more community thing, and I, I can know from experience where the one at Catherine Street is always is always absolutely mobbed, as well. So this one, obviously, having a second one in the city, um, it's, these these kind of facilities are really important because, as you mentioned, um, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but as you mentioned, a lot of the a lot of the pitches in the city um, are locked off, or you know, it costs a lot of money for for kids to hire. So these kind of things are very important for young people, aren't they? We get regularly about four hundred kids a week um, coming to our sessions, which we have every night, um, and for like Northfield, Torrey, Maastricht, Kingsford, um, Kingsford and City, not the Shire, <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just we pride opportunities that the kids just don't really get anywhere else. So um, it really is brilliant. If I don't know if you, um, you check out the website for the different areas we work in and stuff, and if you know of areas where kids need things. Um, get in touch and things but it's yeah it just provides opportunities that they don't get elsewhere they don't really get a school they don't get a home and um just gives them an hour or two to open their legs and have a good time and feel safe and comfortable not not yeah not um not in any danger or anything like that yeah no it's really good okay and just uh for information that website is dennis law legacy trust or one word dot org thank you <laughs> much better than me at plugging it uh, not, not, not a problem. We do, we do, we do shill when it's something that something that's worthwhile. And so, also, we'll we'll come to you as well, Martin. You are one of the long-term contributors to the the red final, um, which we have a new issue coming out this weekend. So, I assume it must be a right laugh for you when really important news breaks right on a deadline. Yeah. So, on the subject of shilling, um, <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely for. Uh, uh, the news of uh, Stuart Milne um, standing down pretty much on the eve of our uh, deadline wasn't the most ideal of situations, but um, uh, I, th- I think uh, most of our writers have managed to 
rally to the cause at relatively short notice, and I will say uh, uh, a special thought out to our uh, esteemed editor, Chris Crichton. Um, it's all fine and well. Some of us haven't uh, re- redraft and rewrite things at the last minute, but um, somebody has to kind of pull the 10 or 12 articles together in, you know, in the middle of the night, and he's, uh, um, as ever, up to the task. So um, I will... I will not give any personal views with regards to, or subjective views with regards to how good we think it might be. We'll leave that to the the buying public. But um, I say, um, one way or another, we've managed to get TRF one three eight out the door, and uh, you will be able to judge for yourself if you want to come and visit one of our good vendors in the, the corner of Petaudry Street or Markland Road East on Saturday for the submitting game. Only the 138 issues. Dear me. We're way Only past that. We're way past that now. <laughs> yeah, but we, had to re- <laughs> yeah but, but we did have to rebrand right in the middle of all that, remember? so. If we're still doing this in 20 years, you have my person to shoot me. <laughs> Deal. So uh, we're gonna move, we'll move on now to what was um, a bit of the big news of the week. Um, obviously, we spoke about... Uh, Stuart Milne stepping aside um, There was also the announcement of an Aberdeen FC Atlanta United uh, Let's put this in big brackets Strategic partnership um, Now Richard spoke to Jason Longshore Who works for Atlanta Sports Station uh, radio, Sports Radio Station 92.9 The Game And could be heard commentating on Atlanta United's games So uh, Richard, Richard can take that away Hi Jason, thanks for joining us I, I think the first uh, thing to address would be that I think in some pockets of resistance in Scotland there's still a bit of sniffiness about the MLS which is completely misguided when you consider the scale that Atlanta are operating on the crowds they've been drawing after just three seasons anybody taking one look at uh, the setup over there would have any thoughts of uh, it being a second-rate league dispelled immediately, wouldn't they? Yeah, it's really changed in recent years I mean, I've followed the league from day one, but obviously since Atlanta United launched in 2017, it's been much more intense. And even in that short period of time, it feels like the league has grown dramatically from before Atlanta's inclusion to now, where you're attracting top South American talent. Uh, Pitti Martinez, the South American Player of the Year for 2018, signed with Atlanta United for the 2019 season, Ezekiel Barco was one of the top young up-and-coming talents out of the Argentine Superliga. He signed ahead of the 2018 season. We've seen the Miguel Almiron transfer to Newcastle. It, it feels like MLS has really grown dramatically off the field, the business side, but also the quality on the field. And it's only going to continue to grow, I think, as more teams come in and bring this fresh blood and fresh perspective into the league. But from a standing start, Atlanta were, it, it was stunning to see a 65,000 seater stadium sold out for many weeks in that first season. Yeah, it was fascinating to me as somebody who grew up in Atlanta to see this because I remember hearing the early rumors about, you know, okay, they, they've hit 20,000 season ticket deposits and oh, that's, that's incredible. But, you know, not everybody ends up Know, converting their deposit into a season ticket purchase, that'll drop some. Then you start to hear, well, now it's 25000 Now it's 30000 And then when the tickets actually went on sale, the, the, the numbers were just staggering. And I, I'll always remember the first preseason game that the team played. 
it was about two hours away in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and driving from Atlanta up there, you saw people with, I mean, stuff that they had just purchased, you know, Atlanta United, like bumper stickers and car magnets that were on the car in the drive up there, and they had to open the other side of the stadium against an amateur team for Atlanta's first game with about seven or 8,000 Atlanta United fans driving a couple of hours for it. And, and then you get into league play, and it's just unbelievable to see. And, I mean, it was something that I thought Atlanta was capable of, but I thought it would take more time. The initial response says a lot about the way this team was built from day one. Of course, you wouldn't still be getting those crowds if, if the things inside the stadium and on the pitch weren't right. And we'll come back to that in a little, a little while. But I can see the attraction from Aberdeen's point of view. Obviously, they get the funds directly coming into them. But there's a possibility of maybe further player loans, such as the, the one uh, we've currently got. John Gallagher is on loan from what we call the reserve side over here in the UK. But uh, the Atlanta United 2, um, I, I don't quite know the structure that they play in or you know how players transfer between Atlanta United 2 and, and the senior side. But John has come over and he's, he's appeared quite regularly and quite a few fans have taken to him. I do wonder what Atlanta are getting out of uh, this deal at their end. I think a lot of it is a kind of a, a European landing spot, uh, not just for players, but I think in general. And, and both sides have talked about broadening their reach and I know on the Aberdeen side it's been the look at what Atlanta United's done in South America for example from a scouting network and I think on the Atlanta side having that ability now in Europe to to better scout the the European continent is going to be huge for Atlanta United I think we will see more player exchanges too Um, Gallagher's an interesting case because he was a college draft pick that came into the club as a forward from Notre Dame. And he's he's not a, a big guy. He played up top in, in college. And, and I was kind of wondering when you first see him, like he, he feels like he's more of a wide player. Mm-hmm. He started playing wide in a, in a 4-3-3 initially. And you know how it can go with reserve team games and, and setups where sometimes you don't have a full selection of players. And there was a, a match in midseason in 2018 where Gallagher had to move to play as, a, as an outside back, as a right back in a 4-4-2. I'd never seen him play there and really took to it. And then Atlanta did a lot of experimentation with uh, wing backs in a 3-5-2 setup, and Gallagher really seemed to fit there as well. So it, it's been an opportunity for him where he's playing behind at the, the first team level a player like Julian Gressel, who was a rookie of the year in 2017 and has been one of the league leaders in assists in Major League Soccer in his time in Atlanta. There hasn't been that opportunity for Gallagher here. So going to Aberdeen was a great step up for where he had been with Atlanta United too, where players can move back and forth, but it's not completely free movement back and forth. If you're on a Major League Soccer deal, you can play with Atlanta United too if you're on an Atlanta United 2 contract specifically, you can't move up without signing a Major League Soccer deal. Some of the the crazy rules of Major League Soccer. But I think the academies will also be another area where both clubs stand to benefit, and especially Atlanta. As Tony Annan, the academy director here, has talked about many times, and he's, I think, been very proactive in this in creating these opportunities for his young players. Maybe before they get that opportunity to sign a professional deal or as they're starting to get some time with Atlanta United too, 
to to go overseas individually and, and get some opportunities to train, but also for the younger academy teams to go as a group and, and go you know for competition sake, but also in exchanges. It, it's a big part of the player development side of things here in the United States where that exposure to the the international game is very important and something that I think youth players have lacked. And I think that's one area specifically Atlanta United will really benefit from. Right, that's interesting. That is interesting because, again, that's something which I think has been a big push here for our youth teams to go and experience that sort of competitive football against different cultures and in different environments. Um, beyond the, the John Gallagher link, we should also mention there's a couple of other existing links. Dave Cormack um, didn't have any involvement with Atlanta United, but he was involved with uh, one of the... I don't know if they were, they were anything like a direct precursor, but the Atlanta Silverbacks, who I think were... Uh, one of the amateur teams that uh, played out of Atlanta. Uh, then, of course, Stephen Glass, who's Yeah, the... they were professional. Um, they were second division, and he was here, I believe, uh, in 2000, um, right before they brought on new ownership, and I think right before he specifically got very involved with Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's been a long-time season ticket holder for Atlanta United yes. from day one and has been involved in, in the Atlanta community as well. And uh, I think... That's another area that's a very underrated part of this relationship is the amazing work that Aberdeen does in the community. I, I think Atlanta United is a new club. It's it's difficult to to have that type of impact straight away as you kind of figure everything out because there's so many things to build. And there's been some great partnerships for Atlanta United in the community, but Aberdeen is, you know, a, a best in class, best in the world type of scenario with the community trust and what they do there. I think Atlanta United can gain a lot from learning um, all of the different aspects of the community programming. Yeah, I was going to ask on that front. It, um, it's a slightly different um, landscape, clearly. Over here, we've got pretty much the field to ourselves. Uh, football is the absolute dominant sport. Whereas at Atlanta, you've got a couple of very established franchises. Has it has it been difficult for the club to make headway on that score? Or obviously they're, they have a, they're owned by the same um, ownership group as the Falcons. So have they been able to draw on that sort of expertise? Yeah, that's been a huge help. I think Atlanta United has been so successful from the jump in sponsorships and, and tickets and just the, the process to, to do all of that because of the Atlanta Falcons and the National Football League franchise that Arthur Blank owns. I think also Arthur's time building Home Depot as, as one of the largest retailers in the world has been critical as well. Customer service is a, a critical element of Atlanta United's success, and that comes straight from Arthur and, and his involvement in building that at Home Depot. Arthur has been very involved in the community as well and has expected everyone with Atlanta United from day one to be involved in the community. And I think here in Atlanta, Arthur Blank has really taken on a, a kind of stewards kind of role of the city. And that's historic with, with Atlanta because, you know, we've had, uh, the Coca-Cola organization and Robert Woodruff was that person for, for years and years and years. And now Arthur has really become that and done so much to benefit the the overall you know city and region around Atlanta. Atlanta United's a big part of that. And while you do have the competition with, you know, American football and basketball and baseball, the soccer community here is very large. And I, I think it's also 
an area where maybe it's a little bit easier to get in and work in schools to work with with girls and get girls active and that's been a, a focal point for Arthur Blank's Family Foundation and Atlanta United has really found a lot of ways to to get their name out there and get involved straight away and luckily here the media has been very receptive to it the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a beat writer Doug Robertson who, who covers Atlanta United home and away he's always following the team and there's not many newspapers in the United States that commit that level of resource I call the games for local radio with Mike Conti on 92.9 the game FM and we travel for home and away fixtures and, and we're you know covering the team in CONCACAF Champions League and there's only a handful of of radio stations that provide that level of commitment so you have a large soccer community that has obviously taken to this, but also you're seeing inroads made in just the general sports community of Atlanta United being a relevant team that maybe other cities in the United States don't have that level of acceptance of their local team. Uh, just finally, uh, Jason, uh, Darren Eels was obviously over in Aberdeen today, part of the press conference. One of the key things I think he said was that um, at the outset, Atlanta had basically three goals, success on the pitch being one of them, and that's easily judged and easily gauged. Community engagement was another, and we've spoken about that. But the third was about trying to be best in class at fan experience. And it is something which I think Aberdeen supporters feel that is lacking at Pataudry. We have obviously a pretty outdated stadium now and there's talk about moving to a brand new facility um, a few miles out of town. What basically have Atlanta done to, to make good on that promise about fan engagement? Darren's really nailed it with a couple of things he said recently about the some of the challenges and the opportunities that, that MLS teams deal with. So, you know, you don't have a huge TV revenue situation right now in Major League Soccer. It's expected to grow. It's been steady, but it's not the bulk of revenues like it is for for many clubs around the world. The game day attendance, the the gate, is a a huge source of revenue. I think it's a bigger percentage of revenue for MLS clubs than it is maybe for any major league in the world. And that means they have to take that fan experience very seriously. It also goes back to, to Arthur Blank and day one and, and the, the customer experience that he cultivated at Home Depot, which is, is one of the best customer service organizations. You know, from a retail perspective, Atlanta United and the Atlanta Falcons have, have had to do that as well. It's just part of the culture that Arthur Blank has created. I think on Darren's perspective specifically, Darren arrived in Atlanta in late 2014 well before the the team had a name, let alone played actual matches. And Darren was critical in building Atlanta United success. And uh, he's called it a pub diplomacy tour where where (laughs) basically he went out and met soccer fans. And he went out and met people one-on-one and had conversations and created relationships. And that's probably one way that the, the David Cormack relationship started was from these types of situations where Darren made it a point to get out and meet people individually and Carlos Bocanegra, the the technical director and vice president now has done the same and 
many members of the Atlanta United front office do that on, on a regular basis. They are out talking to, you know, it's you, you hate to get into the business side of it and call it customers, but yeah, it is, it's, it's part of the, the situation you have to deal with here because it's a critical element of the long-term sustainability of, I think, any club in the world is treating your supporters in the right way. And it's something that Atlanta United has done, I think, as well as, as any startup team in the United States from day one. And the level of support and the consistent level of support has shown that. And, and within the stadium, Jason, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a fairly new build. And it was, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it was custom built for the Atlanta United, yeah? Yeah, it was uh, dual purpose. So it was built um, for the Atlanta Falcons, but with soccer involved from day one. Yeah. So that was a very important element, as you see some stadiums in the United States that are you know, football stadiums that soccer works in, but maybe the experience isn't quite as good as it could be. This venue was built from day one to be the home to both, and they're treated equally in the way everything is presented. What sort of things have been actually baked into the stadium build that really enhance the, the soccer-watching experience? A couple things that, that stand out to me. I think you're seeing a lot of venues now go to the idea of creating kind of common spaces where people can mingle, whether it's pre-match or, or halftime or after a match. Um and kind of hang out and and be you know social. So Mercedes-Benz Stadium has a lot of that. Uh, the supporters' end, you know, was was kind of you know mapped out from day one and where the supporters would be structured uh, behind one of the goals, and that's worked really well. They created a a, a very cool spot where you have your, your your capos who who lead the the supporters groups in different chants and and presentation. And they're actually in the place of a couple of private suites. And right. Atlanta United made sure that they they took those suites out and, and sacrificed that money to have this for their supporters to use on match days. Another thing that Atlanta United did from day one, um, two different traditions that might sound a, a little odd, but they've actually worked really well to, to bring people together. One is... Um, the team coming in off the bus and walking through some of the spectators as they arrive at the stadium. It's something that we've seen a lot of college American football teams do, and it becomes part of the match day experience, especially for kids, you know, to, to line up and, and see the players in their shoots get off the bus and, you know, shake hands and, and get an autograph or get a selfie. And the, the Golden Spike tradition has been one that has actually really become a big deal for Atlanta United in that, you know, they, they have the, the the Golden Spike has become, you know, part of the, the symbolism around Atlanta United. And they have fans and the players autograph a, a actual, like, replica large spike that is then carried into the stadium by representatives from each of the official supporters groups. And then there's a, a celebrity that drives in the golden spike like you would on a railroad. And it's been everybody from, you know, players from the Atlanta Falcons, from the Atlanta Hawks, from the Atlanta Braves, to local musicians, to actors, to professional wrestlers. It's been a little bit of everybody, but it's another one of those experiences that, 
you know, people are now waiting to see who is going to drive in the Golden Spike. Yeah. And those types of match day traditions, you're a new club. You're, you're three years old. So it sounds kind of funny, I'm sure, to you guys. But it's something that has created that experience and created things to rally around. And that's what is maybe hard for a club that's brand new to do. And these have worked really well. The The, the simplicity of the team getting off the bus and walking into the stadium through the crowd has worked so well for the young fans. It's little things like that that try to involve the supporters as much as possible that I think has worked really well. Now, that's really interesting because I think over here, because it's so embedded in our shared culture, I think there's an expectation that the match experience will almost take care of itself. So... Up to this point, maybe the clubs haven't really put enough emphasis on the build-up, the surroundings, you know, what goes on before kickoff. So it'll be interesting to see if any of those ideas are taken on board to our new build stadium. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for your time. That's been really informative. Judging by social media today, the, uh, the Atlanta United have generally got a few thousand more fans in Scotland, and I hope that uh, there's quite a few Georgians looking out for the Aberdeen result from now on. Yeah, I think a lot of Atlanta United fans are, are now going to be following the Dons and, and keeping up with everything. It, it's a big shame that the matches are behind a pay window here. They're, they're part of a, a Bleacher Report live setup. Um, I'm thinking Atlanta United fans will be subscribing to Bleacher Report now to, to make sure to see these matches. It's really interesting and intriguing because it's it's obviously not something, this formal tie-up that we've had before with any other team, despite the fact that it's very commonplace in, in football these days. So it's interesting to see how it pans out from both sides, really. Yeah, this one feels legitimate. It, it doesn't feel like a marketing exercise at all. It, it feels like there's there's more meat behind it, which I like. The marketing ones, we've seen American clubs do them so many times where it's, Selling some shirts, putting the logo on a website, maybe there's an academy exchange. This feels genuine. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And like I, I said about Arthur and Darren, like you're getting people who I, I think can provide value to everything that, that Aberdeen's about to go through with the new stadium and what that can look like. So I'm excited to see it play out. So that's really, really interesting stuff you got there, Richard. What was your takeaway from what you, what you spoke to um, Jason about, though? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, one of the main things that struck me was that there's a possibility for this connection to grow both formally between the clubs themselves and obviously with some of the key personnel. Dave Cormack clearly already has an existing relationship with Darren Eels, who joined the board this week, and that's only going to grow. Um, but I think also informally, perhaps, between, you know, for example, some of the fan groups and so on. They've had tremendous success over there, building a community and a strong ethos among the fans in a very short period of time. And I'm pretty certain that their fan groups would be open to contact from any of our existing groups, or indeed anyone who's got the drive and ambition to do so and to try and coordinate efforts here. Now, obviously, as we've heard, they have a new build stadium that's been designed to try and enhance the atmosphere. And we currently have to work with a pretty neglected old girl with all the quirks and routines associated with it. Maybe the biggest hurdle for us to replicating their success wouldn't be anything to do with the stadium or indeed the stewarding or anything like that, but rather good old British cynicism. I can't help but think that achieving what they have done in a short period of time, yes, it's partly down just to the novelty of having a new team, but it's also about having that genuine enthusiasm as opposed to the 
tiresome negativity that so often seems to be the the initial response around here. And listen, I can assure you that I'm usually one of the grumpiest moaning buggers in the whole pitodry. You know, we've seen attempts in the recent past to start things with very good intentions, but they falter because they were knocked down, not necessarily by the club, but by other factions or the support. I also know that, you know, as much as the Red Ultras butted head against the board and with the security staff, one of their key battles was with fellow fans. So I do think that there's a lot that we as a club and those of us associated with the club could learn from the Atlanta experience. And I'm sure that they would be willing to share. But I think that we'd have to change some pretty entrenched ways of doing things over here. And I tend to think that those on the board are probably going to be much more willing and find that easier to do than many of us fans. If so, so Mark, we did see that there was some movement around on the board as well. Um, Mill and Duncan Fraser have moved to being non-executive directors um, and Ian Jack, Craig Brown and Duncan Skinner um, have stepped down, two of them, into sort of, well, we shoot lesser roles. The most interesting thing that's came so far is when he, he was obviously speaking about this is that he did say was... Um, yeah, he was asked about the new stadium. Obviously, Kingsford is going to be a big thing. And he did say that if the funds can't be raised, then the new stadium can't happen. It was interesting to hear, and particularly given um, it actually surprised me that um, Dave Cormack came out quite strongly as that in terms of I mean, some may see that wasn't strong enough for them. I, I saw there was a lot of people um, on, on social media and other, and other places that were thinking, oh, does this mean that there might be a possibility of either rethinking the, the, the things for development or indeed looking going back to see what the redevelopment possibilities were at Audrey. That that seems unlikely to me because when you go back to, you know, what Richard was talking about uh, with his um, interview with Jason Longshore um, and, and, and the strategic partnership aspect of that with Atlanta United. Now, when, the, when, when, when that kind of language is coming out in the official press releases, um, you look at Atlanta United, and the, and the one thing where you're looking at an information sharing aspect is they have, you know, have only been in existence for a few years. But one of the first things they did was put together their own state-of-the-art training facility, which was followed by a, a brand new uh, stadium development just a year afterwards. So the insinuation to me was, you know, that it was going to be along that line of they would be able to use that kind of knowledge bank in terms of how they then want to continue with the with the, the new stadium at Kingsford. So it actually kind of threw me for a bit of a curveball when uh, Dave Cormack was, was speaking in, in, in that manner. But in, in, the, in the broader scheme of uh, the, the uh, change of directorships, um, I suppose what, one thing which is maybe reassuring for people is it's, it's more of a kind of a, a, it seems more of a considered and, you know, sensible transfer of ownership in terms of, it's not, there's not really a huge change in the, the, some of the people who are involved just in relation to the roles that they have. Obviously, Dave Cormack was already on the board beforehand, but is now taking that chairmanship role, which is understandable given the level of additional investment he's putting forward himself and attracting from other places. Whereas a number of the people, you know, Stuart Mill, it seems, will still be continuing in, on, in a non-director role, as will Duncan Fraser. Um, Craig Brown and Duncan Skinner will continue to have roles with the club as well, albeit they'll be stepping down as, as, as in, in directorship roles. Um, so it, it seems in that regard, at least from the outside looking in, that it's as, as seamless as possible. But I'll, I'll, I might just go on, Richard was saying it beforehand with regards to being frustrated with the sceptical outlook of some fans. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fanzine writer, colour me sceptical. Um, we, we've had a bit of concern going right back to, you think back to the decision to delist 
the club not months ago um, and one of the aspects that we were concerned about is the possible you know, implications on the, the level of um, oversight the regular fans will be able to have with this going forward. It was really telling in the press releases at the time. Stuart Milne was talking about the fact that this was a, a transition that was four years in the making. Now, three years and a substantial element of additional year of that was while we were still in public shareholddom. Um, if shareholddom's a word, it's not. But um, but you know, we were, we were, we were a, you know, a number of us who were shareholders would have probably liked to have had some in, in indication of that in the three and a half years beforehand. That the ultimate line for that was, you know, that that, that it wasn't just a, a vehicle to enable uh, additional financing from you know American financiers, but that in actual fact the long term plan was this transition of the running of the club from Stuart Milne to to David Cormack and and, and that embedded American involvement now. It's obviously not as extreme as it's not an actual takeover in that regard, um, but you know it's just something that you know maybe we should be taking um, a, a more cognizant view over. But you know I don't I don't be too sceptical in that regard. So well, as I say, we are we are at least no, dealing with a known quantity in Dave Cormack rather than a you know a kind of an, an, an unknown uh, or you know or a person that may well have more unscrupulous intentions than what I'm, I'm sure you know Dave Cormack is. You know. He does have those Aberdonian backgrounds. I, I, I don't doubt that he has the best interest in the club at heart, and you know we'll certainly give him the benefit of the doubt going forward. I think with regards to a couple of specific names mentioned there, I'm, I'm fairly certain we'll see Duncan Fraser move on from his non-exec position fairly shortly. You know, he's obviously looking for another job because he had a full-time role at Petardry's chief executive. So it's going to be an opportunity for Dave Cormack then to build his own team and have his own people come in. You know, whether Stuart Mullen stays on in the way that Ian Donald did, it's going to be like the ghost at the feast a bit, though, if he, if he is there, to be honest. I think the best thing for him as a person and for his family would be in short, again, fairly short order to to cut ties uh, as, as much as he can. I don't know whether his intention is to retain the shareholding. Um, the initial indications were coming out before the news was officially released was obviously that Dave Cormack was, was buying his shares. That's turned out not to be the case. That's obviously a good thing because one is, if Cormack's been buying new shares, that's money directly into the club as opposed to money that would go to Stuart Milne if he was to buy his shares. So, and so we'll move on now to, to Saturday's match. Um, um, yeah, St Mirren at home. Looking forward to that one. Um, now, Lewis, um, St Mirren have one win in five. Um, they have the most defeats in the league so far as well, and also the lowest scorers. Uh, now, I'm not going to tempt fate by suggesting that this should be straightforward because it very rarely is with Aberdeen. Surely, you would do. You would think that we would just try and keep keep the same the same starting eleven as close as possible as last weekend. Yeah, I wouldn't anticipate too many changes. I think Viner might be back, which. Um might be interesting to see if he comes in and perhaps you'd see Dev well, perhaps you'd concierge Devlin maybe benched and then lead back to left back and Viner into the middle of uh, midfield. Not sure, we'll see how um see how McInnes plays it. But yeah, we've got to be firm favourites. I, I think they've lost every single away league game this season and then even the League Cups I think they got two nil nil draws um away from home. Although they did beat um St Johnson I saw, who we obviously just didn't beat. But um no, I, I fancy a comfortable win against Samira. And Richard Bryson's Bryson's. We've been told that Bryson's going to have to go for a scan. To think he'll be okay. It's not looking great for him. Um, as as the weeks go on, um, this beca- you know, this becomes a more just a more disheartening and bizarre signing. 
Well, you can't call it a bizarre signing. I think everybody was pretty excited when he was announced. He'd played a lot of games last season for Derby County at the top end of a championship. So it certainly wasn't a bizarre signing. It's one of those that seemed on paper to be to be something that would work. Um, a lot of people were claiming it would be an upgrade on Graham Shinney. Well, the other side to guys like Shinney and McLean that people didn't quite grasp was that they really missed a game because of injury. They were there week after week after week after week, which enabled consistency of selection, enabled that midfield to build its relationship. It's so important to have that in the middle of the park. So him not getting up to speed, and as, again, we talked about last week, this has happened now for a couple summers in a row, that the the bigger midfield signings haven't worked out. It's one of the reasons why you're not seeing the fluency from from these Aberdeen teams over the past couple of years. And I think, Martin, that... um... Obviously, you know, we look at St Mirren. I mean, we all we obviously all have to worry about ourselves. But you know, you, you see a team like St Mirren come up to Aberdeen. We should be. We, th- this is again the, without being too kind of cocky and just dismissing them as you know. This is the kind of games where, uh, you know, the position we find ourselves in the league. We are third in the league. Uh, you know, we're looking to, you know, at the very least, stay there and get higher. We really should just be. These are the kind of games you look you look forward to and see. You know, just getting the three points on the board and you know racking up some goals. Um, certainly with any luck we would like to see a few more goals and you know in fairness to the Aberdeen team in recent months we had a, maybe a bit of a shakier start at the beginning of the season but in, in recent times the last few um, set of home games that we've seen Aberdeen have actually been doing exactly that they've been um, seeing off the opposition that they're supposed to be well, well, you know, obviously take aside the, the Celtic result which is a complete um I was going to say aberration. It's not an aberration in terms of how we normally play against Celtic these days. But, um, you know, for the teams that we get at home that we're supposed to be beating, we have generally been beating them comfortably in the last month or two. So hopefully we'll be more in the same again. Um, what I'd like to see in terms of the, the lineups, um, I, I'd like to start seeing a bit more consistency week in, week out in relation to what our actual, you know, best lineup should be. And obviously that's not going to be possible in terms of I, I have no doubt that when Craig Bryson for example was signed at the club we're, we're not paying money for those kind of players without you know that player being targeted as you know someone that should be starting week in week out but if he's not either not available for injury or he's not up to speed fitness wise then what can you do with that but um, when Lewis was talking earlier about you know potentially wanting to see you know someone like Constantine set or half and someone like Devlin getting dropped I, I absolutely I I, I entirely empathise with the lack of consistency that we've seen from Devlin in particular but I, I, I'd actually personally just prefer to say you know, for for better or for worse, you know, you've got guys like Scott McKenna and Mike, Mike Devlin are getting picked in an international squad it may not say much for today's Scotland international team obviously but you know, if these are guys that are earmarked as being our starting centre-halves, I'd rather we just started playing them regularly, particularly in a position like central defence, and just getting them playing more regularly, and hopefully that, that regular continuity in some of those positions will, will pay off, and, and, and that's where it becomes even more important in places like in midfield. We'll, we'll need to start making a decision sooner rather than later about is price the likes of a Bryson, or you know, when Ojo, Prince Ojo gets back, are these people that actually have a long-term future as our first-choice midfielders, or, or, or are we looking at the likes of, you know, if we're looking to get Greg Lee in on a long-term basis, are we now viewing him as our starting central midfielder and not a left back? And 
you know, is that where we're seeing Zach Viner playing in a more regular basis? You know, I, I just rather start to see. I still think we've not got to the stage of, you know, knowing what Derek McInnes's preferred starting eleven would be and whether we agree with the positions or not. I just like to start and see that, you know, regularity in terms of a starting eleven. I think what has become very apparent over the last few weeks is that the key men in this Aberdeen team this year, I mean, yes, Sam Cosgrove is scoring all the goals. Yes, you've got Joe Lewis at the back, his sterling job as ever. But Ryan Hedges and Nam again are currently critical to the way Aberdeen play. If you can get them firing, get them involved in the game, then it's generally leading to some pretty positive stuff. So the more that you can you can utilise them, the more you can get them on the ball, I think the better. And I think they dovetail really well together, which for guys who are usually operating on different sides of the park is quite surprising. But, you know, when they seem to be on the same wavelength. Yeah, Lewis, I think Richard and Richard Martin both make interesting points there as well. I mean, you know, we find ourselves in a position we're in and, you know, Derek is missing... You know, two of his two of what you is marquee signings from the summer as well. You know, Ojo and Bryson. Uh, so there is still there is still plenty to be positive about this season. Yeah, no, there is. And um, actually, just come back to what Martin said. I fully agree about getting a consistent lineup, but I was more thinking the fact that yeah, Devlin's form has been shaky and Constant has been so consistent and pretty probably one of our best, if not the best, defender. Um, that we've had this season so it would just be interesting to see whether he does come in, in back into centre half and Lee goes back to left back or not it would be interesting to see but yeah it's just it's a strange strange situation where we're potentially dropping our Scottish centre back for the centre back who's never played or got near Scotland um, international duty um, and Bryson yeah just on a wider point it would be interesting do, do you think can we just put Bryson down to like bad luck? Like I seem to remember he was playing every week for Derby for years and years, getting constantly touted for Scotland, and then barely ever injured. And as soon as he comes up here, he's been just a crock since almost day one, hasn't he? Um, I know a lot of people like will blame McInnes for a lot of signings, but yeah, as Mark, um, Richard said, we're all excited for him to come here, and then to turn out the way it has just seems to me just incredible bad luck. And ho- well, hopefully. It can be turned around the second part of the season, but now we're in almost December and he's still barely kicked the ball. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how it pans out and what happens next. No, I agree with you, Lewis. I think an element of it comes down to, to bad luck. Um, and I think you have to make decisions. It's obviously, if it doesn't work out, then it's a, a reasonable amount of money, both in terms of what we paid for him and undoubtedly what he must be on in terms of wages. But I think the majority of fans looking at it in isolation at the time we made the signing thought, you know, as far as the quality of player that you're bringing in it would, it, you know, it, it's the right decision to make and if it, if it works and, it, and if he isn't curtailed with injuries and he is in a position where he can contribute then it would have obviously worked out. I, I think uh, I think the intention from McInnes coming back to that aspect of what his starting 11 is, first of all I, I, I agree with, with you Richard, um, you've got San Cosco banging in goals up front uh, McInnes and Hedges they were clearly viewed as the two main providers whether that be as kind of traditional wingers or or depending on how you want to utilise them but they were going to be creative forces but I think he'd originally targeted that you'd have Funzo Ojo in that kind of defensive midfielder role dare, dare, dare I say it's maybe bad words nowadays but dare I say that kind of Ryan Jack style um, replacement ultimately um, 
Craig Bryce maybe I think he was traditionally more involved as a kind of box to box midfielder with Derby and I don't think he was ever used I don't think he has the legs for that kind of thing so I think that's where Lewis Ferguson was going to take more of that Graham Shinney role of doing the leg work and, then, and I think he viewed Bryson as being central to that kind of he was going to be that a kind of almost attacking midfielder role the kind of you know the Ryan Christie kind of position that a, a very different type of player but that kind of player that would have linked the, 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 the midfielders to those kind of creative players and unfortunately he's just never been in a position where we've been able to utilise that and coming back that's why I think maybe he's been looking at the four four two instead where if you simply don't have those midfielders available or, 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 or fit to play then you keep again in, in, in hedges in those creative roles but then you know if you just don't simply have that midfielder why not just have that as a second striker so I think that's how it's developed but yeah I agree with you Lewis. I think it was an element of bad luck and I certainly wouldn't criticise McInnes for making a move for a, who's, someone who's clearly a quality footballer Talking about the four four two, the flirtations with the four four two lately, I think, have almost been specific occurrences related to the game in question. We started with four four two against Kilmarnock because they were playing without regular centre halves. We changed our four four two at Ross County because we weren't really getting the penetration um, and threatening enough in their box with the uh, 4-2-3-1 and it, you know, we scored pretty much as soon as Curtis Main came on he had nothing to do with it but we still scored um, and against St Johnson at the weekend I think we, the last game out obviously St Johnson were playing against Hibs they'd went with two up front and they'd really struggled to cope with it and Christian Doidge scored a hat-trick Doidge is this season's Sam Cosgrove it seems by uh, judging by the last couple of games um, so I, I don't know if you know, the thought is to is to reduce the the number of midfields we need. Again, that's no doubt played a part. If Bryson isn't up to speed, if Ojo's out, if um, Stephen Gleeson continues to be the invisible man, I don't think it's quite like last season when, yeah, that May and Cosgrove were paired for, for quite a few games, really, and it looked like it was a solution until Greg Stewart came along and fucked everything up. <laughs> <laughs> I think the intention would definitely be, as you laid out, Martin, Ojo to play defensive midfield, Bryson to play that midfield role, Ferguson to provide the legs. But things don't always work out in paper how it, how how you want them to. This is not a game of football manager. Real life gets in the way. I think the other thing is it's becoming harder and harder for players to come back from... A poor start, a struggling start. Back in the day, you know, we had the likes of Gordon Strachan and Mark McGee, guys who went on to become hugely important figures at this club. People who were around at the time, which doesn't include me, by the way, but people who were around at the time will tell you that they really, really struggled in their first, well, year, really. People are just not given that length of time now. Oddly enough, though, as we spoke earlier... Sam Cosgrove, it wasn't quite a year, but Sam Cosgrove was persevered with. He was um, given the opportunity, given the game time to, to bed in and, and, and to improve. And boy, has he improved. Obviously, with Bryson's track record, you'd expect that they will continue to persevere with him. But if the problems are as much physical as uh, they are in terms, as they are maybe in just getting up to speed again with the, with the SPFL, then that could be a problem that nobody can get past. And on that excellent point, I think we'll wrap up the show for this week. Um, just want to thank a guest, as always, Richard Hay. It's a pleasure. Yep, thank you. And also want to thank L- Lewis Walker. Um, Lewis, where can we find you online again? 
You can find me on watersfromash.com, even though there's been nothing since we beat those part-timers in Europe in August. I might find the motivation to write something new sometime soon. And also with thank Martin Ingram of the Red Final. And we know we can find you on Merkland Road on Saturday at about 2 o'clock, is that right? Absolutely. I'll be wearing my Dolly Digital bonnet. Uh, I'll be highly recognisable. So um, please feel free to either buy something from me or just hurl random reviews. <laughs> An offer that none of us can refuse. And, and of course you both. <laughs> and if you don't recognise him from the hat, the fact is that yeah. 7 foot 2 will give the game away. <laughs> Definitely. So, yep, so St Mirren on Saturday. Let's hope for three points, um, a good win, and we'll be back with another podcast hopefully next week. Until then, come on, you Reds.